Hear that? It's the call of the Crave. And when the Crave calls, you know what to do. Try the $5 Bacon Bundle, because the only thing better than a White Castle slider is a White Castle slider topped with crispy hickory smoked bacon. So pick any two of either the Bacon Cheese Slider, 1921 Bacon Cheese Slider, or Chicken Bacon Ranch Slider, and also get a small fry for just $5 with the $5 Bacon Bundle. White Castle. Follow your Crave. Want to connect with a family member who doesn't speak your language? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning through an intuitive process. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. And with a lifetime membership, you have access to all 25 offered languages. Get started today. Visit rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 to get 50% off your lifetime membership now. That's rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 for 50% off. Witness Docs from Stitcher. All episodes of Unfinished Deep South are available to binge listen on Stitcher Premium. Premium listeners get an ad-free experience, can listen to all the episodes of Unfinished Deep South right now, and play a key part in supporting our show and reporting. You can get a free month trial of Stitcher Premium by going to stitcherpremium.com and signing up with the code WITNESS. So if you want to see how the entire story unfolds right now, that's stitcherpremium.com, promo code WITNESS. Previously on Unfinished Deep South. Please don't get me or my dad in trouble. Why won't you tell us? Because he has his relatives. But so does Isidore. It's kind of like everybody's coming together to hide a secret. No, I'm keeping a secret because I don't want to get sued. You see what I'm saying? I'll be, I'll be frank. I don't want to get sued. So if I turn this thing off and we're not no. recording anymore, will you tell me? No. Can I guess and have you shake your head yes or no? Well, you can guess. Go for it. In many ways, Marion, Arkansas can feel timeless, like nothing much ever changes. Fields white with cotton, coyotes cruising through the soybeans, and the persistent parade of trains. Our investigation occasionally felt that way too, slow and steady, more like archaeology than journalism. A fragment here, a clue there. But then we met Rosalind O'Neill, and the investigation suddenly started to pick up speed. She said that sometime in the late 70s or early 80s, a man had drunkenly told her he had murdered Isidore Banks. The, the guy who told you he did it, he didn't mention anybody else who helped him? No. And he was six sheets to the wind when he did, and of course I turned white. Why would he tell you? Because he was drunk. But she wouldn't tell us his name. We argued, begged, tried to persuade her that she was protecting a possible murderer. But Rosalind wouldn't budge. So we kept looking, called other people, knocked on different doors, and then we found someone. Someone who was well-connected and still troubled by the lynching. And one late October day, this person was willing to talk, but only on deep background, without attribution. What else? Gave us a name, a new... (laughs) Told us a story about an old lawyer who's now dead. They were talking about the Isidore Banks case, and... This source of ours said, I really have no idea who did it, 
never heard who did it. And this old-time lawyer said, Well, damn, everybody knows who did it. It was Sam Burns. We'd heard his name before, but not in reference to Eastor's case. And could it really be true that everyone thought he did it? We went back to Rosalind. The other one we heard was that it was a man named Sam Burns. Who told you that? Somebody in town. Who told you that? Rosalind wasn't expecting this. Her guard went up. But then, for a moment, it was almost like she was relieved that we'd gotten this information somewhere else. Did they mention what his occupation was? Who was a veteran? Um, But see, I don't want the source to be me. I'm Taylor Hom. And I'm Neil Shea. This is Unfinished Deep South. Episode 6, The House Painter. Talking about Sam Burns made Rosalind nervous, so she kept trying to change the subject, point us toward old suspects or motives. What'd you find out about Goodwin? I'm Because I'm, I'm kind of like, how in the hell did he end up with so much money? But we weren't going to let it go. We wanted to know what Sam Burns told Rosalind decades ago about the murder of Isidore Banks. Sam died in 1999, but he spent most of his life in Marion. So his... He lived right over there. In this part of town? Yeah. You go right across the street right. from here. There's a church. Mm-hmm. Well, across the street from the church, there is a white building with a green roof that matches the church. That's about where his house was. And his house was just across the road from where Isidore had once lived. He was a nice guy. He was a hell of a painter. What kind of, was he a house painter? Yeah. Okay. But, but um, we're not talking, we're talking about... He could match the wall to that color of your blue jeans. In the 70s and 80s, Rosalind worked as a real estate agent and also built houses. She'd hire Sam Burns as a subcontractor, but he wouldn't paint for just anyone. Because he only painted for a select group of people. Oh. And they were the people of pedigree. Sam Burns worked for elites, white elites, Rosalind said he wouldn't work for African-Americans or Chinese or Italians. And while his clients had money, Rosalind says Sam Burns didn't. Beyond that, Rosalind and other locals didn't really know him very well. About the only thing he's remembered for now is his drinking. Trying to find the friggin' damn painter that didn't show up like he was supposed to, and my client's screaming her head off. That no-show painter was Sam Burns. Since he lived nearby, Rosalind went looking for him. And then when I got to his house, I knew why I wasn't at work, and I was real glad he didn't show up. (laughs) God knows what he would have painted. Or where. How drunk was he? Pretty, pretty, pretty loose. And then, Rosalind said he just told her. Told her that he'd killed that N-word. How did he just happen upon that subject? Are you never around drunks? No, but I mean, whatever their train of thought, rambling a word, I don't know. So he just maybe felt guilty? I, I have no idea. None. 
Rosalind was confused by Sam's drunken confession. It was sudden, unexpected, a kind of emotional ambush. And half a century later, she still has questions. But say, why would that? Why would Sam Burns do, do it? I don't know. And see, the thing is, I still don't think he did it by himself. After months of searching for Isidore's killer, we finally had the name of a suspect. And that name sort of seemed to fall out of the sky. Rosalind and our other source both told us about Sam Burns in the same afternoon. But while Rosalind seemed pretty sure of her memory, our other source warned us that Sam might be a red herring. And we had our own doubts. There were big gaps in this story. Why would he kill Isidore? How would a guy with a serious leg injury overpower a huge, healthy man who, several people told us, carried a shotgun with him for protection? We began searching for connections and motives, but it was hard to put Isidore and Sam Burns together in any scenario. And people who remembered Sam always sketched the same hazy picture. House painter, drinking problem, quiet and reclusive guy. But there was something else about him, something that made us take him seriously as a suspect. In 1963, Sam Burns had been involved in another killing. The other killing happened nine years after Eastor Banks was lynched. It was a warm July day in 1963. Sam Burns' eight-year-old stepdaughter had been riding horses near her home in Marion. And around noon, her mother expected her home for lunch. But she didn't come home right away. And so, according to a newspaper report, the girl's mother got worried when looking for her and found her being attacked in a neighbor's yard by an African-American teenager. The newspaper says when the teen saw the girl's mother driving up in her car, he started to run. He fled west through the neighborhood into some open fields, and the girl's mother told reporters that she chased after him in her car, yelling out the window for help and screaming for someone to call the police. Within minutes, a posse of local men began chasing the teen, and soon sheriff deputies joined in, and so did the girl's stepfather, Sam Burns. The posse chased the boy into a field, and there... Someone shot him through the leg. He was identified as 16-year-old Andrew Lee Anderson. Sheriff's deputies put the wounded boy in the back of a station wagon and eventually drove him to a local hospital. But it was too late. He'd lost too much blood. Later, one member of the posse testified that he believed Sam Burns fired the killing shot. And two newspapers named him as the shooter. Though Burns, speaking to a reporter, denied it. More than 40 years later, Andrew Anderson's killing was added to the FBI's list of unsolved civil rights crimes, the same list where we originally found Isidore's name. At first, the two cases didn't seem related. But in our research, we came across stories of repeat lynchers. One scholar told us that you could sometimes track these guys through the historical record, find them involved in one lynching, then see them pop up in another, then another. These were men who killed with impunity, and seemed to get a taste for it. And we wondered, was Sam Burns one of them? So we dug in, and we ended up back in the basement of the county courthouse. We're back. As we so often did. Back. Hoping to find some surviving sliver of Sam Burns' story. Check my portable devices again. 
No, no. <laughs> Everyone here knew us now. The deputy at the front door didn't bother scanning us with the metal detector anymore. All right. Try to look at some uh, probate records back there. Okay. Or indexes. All right. And the clerk always gave us a kind of sweet, sad smile. Of seven three nine thirty two hundred. Like she thought our mission was hopeless. I forgot how to do this. So. But this time, we found something. Records of Sam Burns' divorce from his first wife in 1954, just three months before Isidore was lynched. In court papers, the woman accused Sam of being a violent drunk who swore at her, beat her, and would often disappear for four or five days at a time. Later, we learned from Sam Burns' military records that he'd served as a Marine in the Pacific during World War II. He eventually got promoted to sergeant, but he also got in a lot of trouble. He got busted for drinking, for going AWOL, and with each bust, he lost rank, which meant he lost pay. And pay would have been important to him because the record showed that he was the oldest child in a poor family of white Arkansas sharecroppers and that he'd been taking care of his parents and his two youngest siblings since he was 19 years old. After the military records, the trail went cold. We couldn't find any obvious reason Sam Burns might have killed Isidore so viciously, with a kind of fury that seemed personal. But the two killings, nine years apart, shared more than just a connection to Sam Burns. To start, they happened just a couple of miles from each other. And the same sheriff and his deputies, they were involved in both cases. Sheriff Goodwin, he was the tax collector who died with a suspicious fortune. A fortune that may have come from abusing his power and stealing land from African-Americans in Crittenden County. Two of the deputies who chased down Andrew Anderson were the same deputies who investigated Isidore's death. In Isidore's case, these men never named a suspect, never made an arrest, and refused to even acknowledge his death was a lynching. And when Andrew was killed, the same prosecutors and local politicians who were in power in Isidore Banks' day were still in office. The two murders, and how the community responded to them, seemed to follow a well-established pattern of disregard for African-American lives. And we wondered if the cases had even more similarities waiting to be uncovered. We thought that if we could learn more about Sam Burns' role in Andrew's death, maybe we'd find a clue, a pattern, a motive, something that might tell us if Sam killed Isidore. Want to connect with a family member who doesn't speak your language? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning through an intuitive process. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. And with a lifetime membership, you have access to all 25 offered languages. Get started today. Visit rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 to get 50% off your lifetime membership now. That's rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 for 50% off. I think the doorbell works. It's like a wind tunnel right here. It took us a while to track down Andrew's family, but after two weeks of failed phone calls, 
We eventually got an address. Hi. Hi, I'm looking for Miss Geraldine Gates. And on a cold winter afternoon, we found ourselves in Memphis, on the doorstep of Andrew's sister. Sorry to disturb you. I think I probably pestered you. I left you a couple of messages, and I think I, think I spoke with your granddaughter or niece. Uh-uh, my grandson. Okay. Yeah, he was uh, very kind. You all like dinner? Thank you very much, ma'am. Thank you. Jerlene Gates is 67 years old. Her home was warm inviting, and decorated in her favorite color, purple. Family photos hung on the walls, and stew simmered in the kitchen. We've been, we're from New York, we're from Brooklyn, um, we're journalists, and we've been investigating um, the murder of a man named Isidore Banks, who was killed, who was lynched in 1954. Um, so we've been trying to solve that that murder, and it seems that it may be linked to, I believe, your brother's. Uh, uh-huh. Andrew. Andrew. Anderson. Yeah. Back in the 1960s, the Anderson family lived outside of Marion in a two-room house on a cotton plantation. Mom and dad were sharecroppers, and they had 12 children. Andrew was the oldest. My mom and them called him little buddy, but for the day, we called him Lobber. I don't know why we gave him that name, but we called him Lobber, but my mama and, and daddy used to call him little buddy. Little buddy to his parents, Lapa to his brothers and sisters. Andrew was adored by his family. And Geraldine remembers their home full of joy. And we pick cotton, chop cotton, and uh, everything. Get up early. My mama get up so early. I could smell that ham and eggs and stuff. You know, she be in went to the coop and got them eggs out, having them eggs. Ooh, frying and be smelling so good. <laughs> and make them butter biscuit. Ooh. Yeah, about all us being together in the house, it just made her feel so close, you know, in togetherness, in love, you know. That is the sound, that's sort of the soundtrack of family love, isn't it? Uh huh. Breakfast cooking in the morning. Ooh. Voices out there in the kitchen. Mm hmm. And she'll wake us up. Rough time, children. <laughs> oh, I miss my mom and my dad. Miss my bro, miss all my people that are gone. You know, you're going to miss them. A few days later, we meet Jerlene again at the home of her twin sister, Erlene. The two women are Andrew's only surviving siblings. Well, he was a real tall. He, he about the tallest that dough right there. He was the tallest one of my mother's children. Mm-hmm. And he was bright, brown-skinned, and stocky-built. That was Erlene. She and Jerlene sat together on a couch, shoulders touching, finishing each other's sentences. And Andrew's story seemed to spill out in a single stream. Did he have nicknames for He used to throw up up. He used to yeah. play with us. And, and and make faces. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That was really our, our fun time too. Uh, Geraldine told us that he uh, he had a great smile. Mm-hmm. He used to love to uh, fry them green tomatoes, and I remember that morning. I can recall back that morning he was uh, 
fried some green tomatoes and ate some that morning. He left and he didn't come back. I'll never forget. In his teens, Andrew would make extra money by mowing lawns and doing odd jobs for white people. He loved having the cash, but his parents, especially his dad, were terrified. He would tell my brother not to go because he said, uh, Mayor, Arkansas was a dangerous place. And that for they, black people? Said for black people. But he always said it was dangerous. He'd tell mm-hmm. my brother, you need to stay here and help me on the farm because it's not nice going up there. Yeah, like, but he, uh, I guess he thought about he being 16 years old, he can make him some little extra money, you mm-hmm. know, for, for his girlfriend, you know, and maybe. Because he was going up there doing different yard work for different there, people. Mm-hmm. But I guess he... He ran up on the wrong person. That no, time. no he, you know. he, he, he did two or three jobs no, for that man. Yeah. The morning Andrew was killed, he made an early breakfast, kissed his sisters goodbye, and headed into Marion to make some money. Hours later, sheriff's deputies pulled up to the Anderson house and told the family Andrew was dead. Well, it was a pretty sad day that day. I remember mm-hmm. good. Mm-hmm. Crying and praying, and, no. Yeah. What did your mama do? She went down when they told her she just flopped down and just hit the floor and started, you know, screaming. Mm-hmm. Yep. What did your father do? Well, my daddy really was upset. He just said he wished my brother had a, stayed on the farm and helped him. And I guess he didn't know that was going to happen that day, but I know he didn't rape that little girl. The twins have spent their lives wondering about the details of that day in 1963. But there's one thing they're certain about. They do not believe that Andrew assaulted the girl. Officially, there was only one investigation, conducted the next day. It was something called a coroner's inquest, which is a sort of obscure legal procedure Witnesses are called before a jury, and the jury gets to ask questions. But the point of the inquest was not to figure out if Andrew actually sexually assaulted the girl. It was not to untangle the events surrounding Andrew's death. In fact, it had nothing to do with guilt or innocence. The only purpose of the inquest was to decide whether or not Andrew's death should be investigated as a homicide. In Andrew's case, 19 jurors were convened in the county courthouse, the same one we spent so much time in and a dozen or so witnesses were called before them, including sheriff's deputies and civilians who had joined the posse, as well as the little girl's mother, who was Sam Burns' second wife. All of the jurors were white. All of the witnesses were white. And according to an NAACP report, Andrew's family was not allowed to take part in the proceedings. For more than three hours, witnesses recounted how Andrew ran from the posse, how he was shot once through the right leg, and how sheriff's deputies eventually drove him to a nearby hospital where he bled to death. And yet, during all the testimony, one witness was conspicuously absent. Sam Burns sat outside the courtroom with his lawyer. And though he was mentioned several times as an armed member of the posse, and one witness even indicated that he saw Sam Burns fire the killing shot, Burns himself was never called to testify. When the inquest was over, He told reporters that he didn't shoot Andrew. In the end, deliberations took less than 20 minutes, 
and the jurors decided that Andrew's death was excusable. They based their conclusion on a vague Arkansas law that permitted any person to stop a fleeing suspect if that suspect was accused of committing a felony. So in other words, it didn't matter whether Andrew had actually sexually assaulted the girl. The only thing that mattered was that someone thought he did. For white people in Crittenden County, that was enough. The inquest had served its purpose. It was neat, quick, clean. And county attorneys closed the case. After the shooting, Andrew's father, Roy Anderson, went into town to see his son's body. Erlene and Geraldine remember their father coming home that day and telling them it looked like Andrew had been shot more than once and that there was a gaping wound in his back. These details totally contradicted the narrative that came out of the inquest, which said that Andrew had only been shot once. He did not die. To the hospital. He did not uh, 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 die at no hospital. They said they, they took him to the hospital, but he bled out. A few days after the coroner's inquest, Andrew's father tried to clear his name. According to an FBI memo from that time, Roy Anderson traveled to Pine Bluff, Arkansas, to meet with a representative of the NAACP. Roy told the NAACP a different version of what happened to his son. In this version, Andrew wasn't a criminal. According to Roy, on that morning in 1963, Andrew was minding his business, mowing a lawn in the center of Marion, when a little white girl rode past on a horse. The noise of the lawnmower spooked the horse, the horse bucked the girl off its back, and Andrew ran over to help her. From there, everything went wrong, and Andrew's act of kindness was misconstrued as an attack. Roy's version of events is still told in Marion's African-American community. It's the story Jirlene and Erlene believe to this day. But back then, no witnesses ever came forward to support Roy's account. If they did, we weren't able to find any record of it. And even though local African-American leaders pushed for answers, the FBI and state prosecutors never investigated. You said that Black folks afterwards were scared to talk. Mm -hmm. Do you remember any more details about that or your dad talking about that? I don't know. I believe he did, but like I said, they probably wouldn't talk. But I really believe Mm -hmm. he tried to get them to talk, but they probably Mm -hmm. scared to say anything. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I remember I used to hear kind of whistling back home with my mama talk, but I, you know, they, they didn't want us to, uh. Listening to the sisters, everything sounded familiar. The violence, the fear, the silence. It was an echo of what had happened to Isidore Banks nearly a decade before. The sisters had never heard Isidore's story, but in the larger account of Southern race terror, Isidore and Andrew were forever linked. By place and era, by the actions of local officials and the inaction of federal ones, and perhaps by a single killer, if Sam Burns really was involved in both murders. The Gates family eventually learned that it was Sam Burns who allegedly shot Andrew. They never met him, but Jirlene and Erlene remember the rumors that swirled around him about his temper and his drinking. He was mean. He, he, he used to drink because... I remember a lot of days was telling us that that man used to drink till you have a, 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 a bill. Yeah, and, and I had forgot. You know, when you, when you, uh, the age we was, was, a lot of stuff, you just, it just passed kind of by you. He just said that man used to drink. 
and, and, and carried a, a, a gun. For the Anderson family, it was maddening. They knew that whoever had killed Andrew was walking free in Marion. It wasn't no law for black people back then. It wasn't no law. Andrew's family was eventually allowed to take his body home. The Andersons gathered in their Sunday clothes for a small graveside ceremony. They didn't have enough money to buy Andrew a headstone, and there wasn't much time for grief. Uh, we didn't know whether they might come back and, and do something to us, you know, because, Lord forgive me, there was some prejudiced people up there in, in Mary, in that town. It was too painful, too frightening to stay. So not long after Andrew's death, the Anderson family moved away. Mm-hmm. Did you ever go back? Mm-mm. Nope. Not, not over there, back, not over there. <laughs> <laughs> Too many memories. Yeah. Andrew's killing, like Isidore's, was eventually investigated in the early 2000s, during the FBI's probe into unsolved murders from the civil rights era. But when a couple of agents finally knocked on Jirlene's door, they told her no new evidence had been discovered, and Andrew's case was closed, just like Isidore's. What would closure look like for you now? If we could find her, and if she would talk. They mean the little girl at the center of this story, Sam Burns' stepdaughter, the one Andrew was accused of attacking. If she would talk and tell us the truth, mm-hmm. his family would have closure. I'm his sister. That's his sister. And we was 10 years old when that happened. And my mom and daddy passed, gone to their grave. They wanted closure and never did get it. My sister and brother gone on. They never did get it. And I said, you can just tell the truth. It'll be a whole lot of burden off you too. And I said, oh, we just want closure. Was that the truth, what my brother did to you, or was it a lie? And I ain't really got no more hate. I ain't got no, no hate for heart. that woman. I really don't. Because we were so little, and she was a child. Mm-hmm. We didn't know no better, and she didn't know no better. That girl would now be a woman in her 60s. If she was still alive, and if we could find her... She'd be the best chance we had of learning what really happened the day Andrew was shot. And then, maybe she could tell us if her stepfather, Sam Burns, lynched Isidore Banks. Next time on Unfinished Deep South, we try to find the girl. The mailbox is full. I cannot accept any messages at this time. Goodbye. That's changed. Why? Didn't we leave messages before? She's clearly not, yeah, she's blocked me. It's totally clear. Unfinished Deep South is a production of Witness Stocks from Stitcher and Market Road Films. Written and produced by us, Taylor Hom and Neil Shea. Editing by Peter Clowney, Gianna Palmer, and Tracy Samuelson. 
The show is produced by Laura Kalaluri and Stephanie Kariuki. Our executive producers are Lynn Nottage, Tony Gerber, Peter Clowney, and Chris Bannon. Our mixing engineer is Casey Holford. Special thanks to our fact checker, Michelle Harris. Deep South features blues, folk, and gospel music performed by Hubby Jenkins. Original theme music and score by Casey Holford, with musicians Ryan Thornton and Dan Costello. Special thanks to the extended family of East Door Banks, who gave generously of their time, their patience, and their memories. Thanks also to Professor Margaret Burnham and the Civil Rights and Restorative Justice Project at Northeastern University, to Willie Gammon, and to the 78 Project. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen.